Our third lesson comes from the book of Hosea, the good prophet. We'll read and then we'll pray and see what the Lord might say to us. Hosea 5. Thus says the Lord, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their distress, they will beg my favor. Come, let us return to the Lord. For it is he who has torn, and he will heal us. He has struck down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His appearing is as sure as the dawn, and he will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have killed them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we are indeed thankful this morning for the gift of your word. And I think, Lord, above all things, for the promise of your presence here with us, just to be gathered into a single place, all together with you, Lord, where our lives and hearts and minds, our thinking and our living, Lord, can be aligned to you. where we can, in fact, Jesus, come to be reminded that you are a living hope. And I pray, Lord, I ask especially this morning for the special gift and grace of the things, Lord, that we have forgotten or that which has become distorted even in our own minds, in our own hearts. Would you give us, Lord, a special kind of grace to remember what is right and true and good? Will you help us, Lord, to hear from you? We love you, Jesus. We're thankful, Lord, for who you are. And it's in your name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, good morning, church. It's great to see you, uh, to have all of you here with us on um, this incredibly beautiful uh, Northwest Arkansas Sunday. If you happen to be visiting Christ the King, uh, welcome. It's your first Sunday. I'm Ashley. I'm the pastor here, at least one of them, and so thankful to have you here with us. We're going to be um, preaching for the next few weeks, actually, uh, through the Old Testament prophets. And um, you might be thinking, rightly, wow, it's summer. Nobody told her. <laughs> Summer is chill, and the Old Testament is not chill. Um, so why? <laughs> why would we spend these summer weeks um, with the Old Testament prophets is a great question. And um, here is my short answer. Uh, because this is, at least according to the liturgical calendar, our great green growing season. It's ordinary time. This is the longest stretch in the church calendar between the end of Easter and the beginning of what will be Advent for us. And um, I love the church calendar. If you've been here, you know that, in large part because it helps to like sort of focus our minds and situate our real lives um, around the life of Jesus. 
And so ordinary time is a stretch in the calendar that's meant to remind us, you know, that for all of like the epic grandeur of the story of Jesus's life and our faith, that actually the real growth, like the becoming like Jesus stuff, happens in really ordinary time, in really ordinary space. That you are meant to have and certainly will have and should expect to have these kind of epic encounters with God that are life-changing um, and whatever that might look like for you. I suspect if we were to go around the room, we could probably plot out at least a number of us. Like, I had this experience of God or this encounter of God at this point in my life and it changed my life, that moment. And then there was a stretch of like just ordinary stuff and then maybe punctuated by another moment. That even plays itself out in the pages of scripture. That's real life. That's just kind of the way it works. And so the church calendar, kind of like a prophet, is meant to come alongside us and remind us, you know, don't just live, you know, like on neutral between the moments. It's not a break from God, actually. The summer is not just for being chill in the like we're on vacation from expecting God to show up in our lives. It's just that there will be these whole stretches of your life in which God's showing up will not feel necessarily epic, you know, or out of the ordinary. It will just be really God in your very real life. And so we looked at um, last week Genesis in order to be reminded of the fact that like at the very beginning of our Bible, the whole story starts with God creating a world that he has a very specific vision for. In other words, we get like let in on this, what I think is kind of beautiful um, testimony from God, which is that God created the world with hopes and dreams for it, that he wanted something, that he hopes and loves something. And we're given this vision at the very beginning of the story. And so I think during ordinary time, we're meant to be reminded of the fact that if I'm going to grow if my life, my faith is going to grow, if I'm going to become more and more like Jesus, that that is towards a particular vision that God has. That growth is in a particular way. It looks like a kind of thing. It will bear a certain kind of fruit, to use the agricultural analogy. Like, growth is a specific kind of thing. So if ordinary time is for growing, like, what's the growing about? You know, what does it look like? Yeah, okay, Jesus, sure. Yes, him as a person, for sure. But even Jesus himself, who he was, his person, was a reflection of God's vision, God's heart for the world, his promises. So, like, what is that? This is an excellent time to be reminded, which is what last week in part was about, going back to Genesis. And then the prophets show up in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, to say, you know, God has a vision and we live oftentimes our lives in kind of contrary or alternate fashion. And the job of the role of the prophet in part was to call people back into alignment, was to help them, in other words, remember who they are and who God is so that they could be reconciled to who God is and to who they were. And so in short, here's what I want to say. My hope for spending these weeks in the prophets is this, that you would remember things that you may have forgotten about who you are, who God is, and who we're called to be. That if I'm going to grow, it will have everything to do with my memory, my active, living, engaged memory about who I'm supposed to be in this world, who God really is, and what this is all about. <laughs> because otherwise, y'all, let's just be honest, we're just kind of living from one thing to the next thing, you know? Either we kind of live without much purpose at all, or we let our 
aspirations, our ambitions define our sense of purpose, or we let our culture define our sense of purpose, and then we measure growth accordingly. And so part of what I love about ordinary time is it's like the church reminding you, like, hey, if you're going to grow, if your life bears fruit, it does so for a particular reason in a particular way. And that will depend on us remembering what is that exactly? One of my favorite writers is a Jewish writer named Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he wrote a couple of books that you've probably heard of, one of them um, called The Prophets. And in this book, he says in short, the role of the prophet is to help us remember so that we might be reconciled. And I love that. Because reconciliation is not just about like overcoming relational difficulty. Reconciliation is trying to get to a place of harmony, realignment with who I am, with who God is, and with the world around me. So part of me being reconciled to God, to myself, and to the world around me, at least according to Heschel, has everything to do with remembering. And that's the role of the prophet. The prophet is not so much, as we are wont to think, a fortune teller. We think about prophets as those who like can see into the future oftentimes. And it's not that that's not a part of who they are, but just particularly if you're looking at the Hebrew Bible, that was not the primary function of the prophet. The prophet was not trying to predict the future for Israel. The prophet was trying to basically come alongside God's people and say, hey, remember who you are and remember who God is. It's the gods of the world who are demanding sacrifices from you. Actually, if the gods of the world are demanding the blood of goats, he goats, cattle on a thousand hills, like actually you have to actively remember Israel that that is not who your God is. That that's actually not what he's required of you. And I'm telling you that that makes all the difference, y'all, that space between a memory that has shifted like 10 degrees this way or 10 degrees that way in how we live our lives, what our aims are, our hopes are, our intentions are, how we go through everyday life, how we grow. So that's what I hope in spending time in these prophets for the next few weeks, that we get a chance to remember so that we could be reconciled to the Lord and to a sense of who we're called to be. So we can find our groove, you know? Is that a silly way of saying it? Like rhythm. I think, I think we're meant to have a kind of natural rhythm to our life with God. Where I can live in sync with him and then my life being in sync with him bears fruit that's less like anxious. It just comes. It's a part of living life. That's the whole promise of ordinary time. What if you could be like in groove with God and sync enough to just live in a way that would bear fruit? Genesis chapter 1 is all about that. There are a lot of things to be said about it, and I hope the thing maybe above all things that you took away from the time that we spent in Genesis 1 last week is this, is that like the God of the universe... Um, his heart really is just to like live in this world and alongside you in it. That it's actually not more complicated than that. It is and it isn't. Genesis 1 spells out a vision 
and a vocation. That's the language I'm going to give to you. If you're the note-taking type, it may be helpful even to write it down. There's a lot happening in those early chapters of Genesis, but among them, we cannot forget, in that opening book of the Bible, I'm given God's vision for the world, and I'm given a sense of vocation. Do we know what vocation means? When you think of vocation, we're thinking about like right what we do, kind of our work, and my purpose in it. So God's vision and then my sense of vocation. God's vision, in short, is communion. Communion with people, with the creation, and also that like creation itself would be sustained in a kind of communion. The vocation that we're given is blessing. So like the work with purpose that I'm given to do is that I am meant to live my life with God so that I am blessed to be a blessing. That's Genesis 12. That's the story of Abraham. And if you've heard this before, or it sounds like we're kind of like going back to basics, the ABCs, well, we are. That's the chill part of summer. We've got to remember to make sure that we have not forgotten. God's vision is communion. So if that's God's vision, just firstly, is that how I am living my life? Would I say in any sense that my life bears the fruit of communion with God? Also, Genesis then comes along and says, vocation for the human person, for the earthly thing, is that your life would be a blessing to other people. You would live it in such a way so that other people are blessed, and there's a sense of flourishing that comes as a result of that. Okay, that's really good to know. That's the early pages of Genesis. What then happens, y'all, in the rest of that story and for much of the Bible is that sin creeps into the story and what we're presented with is an alternative, an alternative vision and an alternative vocation. An alternate vision of the world in which communion is not primary, but actually fractured relationships become primary. Separation becomes primary. And that a sense of vocation is not that I, my life is a blessing so that other people can be blessed, but that actually I spend the rest of my life trying to preserve myself, shore up blessing for me and mine, as opposed to living in such a way that would like ensure blessing goes out from it. And that's the story of sin. Every time I talk about sin, or even like say the word, I am like, it's almost, it's one of those words, it's like, kind of like hard to say, it carries so much baggage with it, you know, it like feels heavy even, because the baggage that it carries in religious circles is um, sort of immediately smacks of like, oh, here we go, it's like all the things I haven't done or I am not, or that I do and that I shouldn't do, and you know, then there's a list, and that's the imagination we have. Or in secular circles, if you were to ever say the word sin, you just sort of immediately sound archaic and out of touch. Either way, it becomes like benign. It just doesn't mean or do a lot for us anymore, sophisticated as we are in 2023. But the story of sin in the Bible, the way that it plays out here in these pages is a tragedy. It's a tragic loss of God's sense of vision and our sense of vocation. And the prophet comes along in order to try to restore or to bring redemption back to God's people because they've lost something as a result of sin. It's taken something from us. 
that God wants to give us back. It's why the language in the prophets is so visceral and intense. I don't know how much time you've spent in the Old Testament prophets um, or when the last time you really read them was, but they're full of really intense imagery, almost violent at times. And the language is intense on purpose. It's what we would call prophetic poetry. It's meant to make you feel something, describing meta in metaphor something that is just like harder to say outright. God's trying to give you a sense of how he feels in this language. And you can hear it even in the text that we read. The question is why? Why is God so incredibly worked up over Israel's sin? <laughs> why does it matter all that much? And shouldn't he just like calm down? Really, is it all that serious? And that's the difference. Is it apparently God feels like salvation and the redemption of the world through you being a blessing really, really, really matters. It's primary in his heart. That actually when we're taught whatever gets lost in Genesis 1 and 2, to God, he can't just exactly shrug it off. And that by a wisdom that I don't have access to, he's actually made that vision dependent on me and you. That vision and our sense of vocation, they're tethered together. You can't separate them out. So that in some way, y'all, that I don't even completely understand God's heart for the world, us actually getting to where we're meant to go is tethered to my own life and your life. And wouldn't it just be better if he would just like do it all himself? So that like it just, you know, it would be nice if I grew as a person or if I became the person I'm called to be. That would be nice for me. But like, can't God just take care of the world? <laughs> and that be his job, then I just like take care of me, and that be my job. And I'm just telling you that's not the picture that we're given. The reason that God is so worked up in these texts is because he senses that something vitally, centrally important to the whole world is under threat of being lost. Namely, you knowing who you are in him. And that if we lose that, sense of vocation and our connection to God, if I lose my communion, then maybe the whole world loses. That there's something bound up in that blessing. So I've been thinking quite a lot about what it is, perhaps, that I have forgotten about who I am, and who we are, who we're called to be. God says in these verses in the psalm, I don't need your sacrifices. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Which is just the best thing to say. In other words, do you, do you realize that I made the cow? I'm, I made the cow. I don't, I don't need to eat the cow. I am not dependent on you for sustenance for myself. What is all of this about exactly, do you think? And the kind of brazen honesty in that helps to remind me of the God that I'm actually dealing with. 
versus the God that I am so prone to making into my own image out of my own imagination. Because here's who God becomes when I am not reconciled to what's true. God does, in fact, become a God of religion. That God is so easy to understand. It's very basic math. I do X, you do Y. I do X, and even if you don't do Y, because you're not real and everyone knows it, I can feel better about myself. That God makes perfect sense to me, and I could invent that God out of my own mind. I can also invent the God of me out of my own mind and imagination. That God performs thusly. You are a very big deal. And I exist to ensure your blessing and prosperity. I am here to make thee prosper. I love the God of me. He's easy for me to understand and relate to. But the God of this Bible, the God of Israel, is not a God that I conjure. And the entire, arguably, at least the latter half of the Old Testament exists to say to Israel, I will not allow you to make me into that God or that God. I am not the God of religion. I am not the God of me. I am the living God. I must be contended with. Contend with me. These texts are almost embarrassing. One scholar that I love, one Hebrew scholar, said, they sound like a God coming undone, full of emotion, visceral almost in his frustration. The God of religion over here, he looks a certain way. The God of me over here looks a certain way. And then there is this God, this Jesus, who would look at me and say, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. For God so loves the world. That is a different vision. It calls me to something. Commands something of my life. He is a living person who must be grappled with, contended with, engaged with, because communion is the vision. To do it together. To partner so that I live my life in a way that blessing would come out of it and that blessing would not just be for me and for me only, but for the people around me. It's the reason that I have so much trouble with sexy Christians. And I say that in short and tongue in cheek in part because we live in a world and I am very much tempted to believe that the, just, the more of me there is and the better I am, the better it will be for God. It's easy to believe that bigger is better and more of me is good for everybody and more of what I want is good for everybody. And I just can't reconcile it with what Jesus did and who he was and what he said. And the reason that I'm saying that to you is because I think that the kind of easiest version of faith for us to latch onto and to believe in some ways 
is that what God would want for you is either a sort of like mindless and heartless obedience or he would want you to just come here and get some really good self-help so that you could live the best version of you. Both of those things easier to believe. And then there's Jesus who stands in the middle, kind of like, like the word for it would be like an iconoclast. He just exists to just bust through and open up and split and destroy all of those false images of who he is. It's just not who he is. Not who he is. What if what God wanted was for you to remember that he wants you to be reconciled, not just here in the way that you think, but here? That what he is looking for is not for you to check all the boxes, to say the right things, do the right things, or even believe all the right things, but that what he actually really wants is communion, which would require that you be reconciled to God here in your affections, in your hopes, your loves, your desires, that those parts, the deepest parts of you, the parts that make you human and who you are, that those would be aligned to God. And if we have gone far from him, if we are not reconciled, if we feel separated or at a distance or put off, is it probably, at least according to prophets, because our hearts have moved away from him, You're like the morning dew, God says. You just go away so fast. Always moving away. So it raises a question, and the one I would leave you with is two. What have you perhaps forgotten? In your own story, about who God is, that like I mean actively in your life now, you're just not thinking about or remembering or consciously ever calling it to mind. Because y'all, that's what all of this is about. God in his grace and mercy brings us here into places like this and puts us in front of his word every morning and calls us to pray so that we can be reminded, so that we can remember what's true and right and good and then orient myself to it. So what have we forgotten? And I would submit to you that the best and most faithful thing to do is simply ask. Ask God, a living God, who might dare to say something back to you. And then secondly, in what way is your life and your heart not reconciled? Meaning where have and how have you perhaps moved away? And what if God is just inviting you to be honest about that because he is who he says he is. A living God, not the God of religion or the God of me. And will call you back to himself so that he could bring a time of refreshing, growth. That's the promise. Let us return to the Lord, the prophet says. Let us return and he will come to us like spring rain, meaning we can expect with our return and our reconciliation a time of refreshing, renewal, and fruit as a result. So I would just submit, put that before the Lord. Take him at his word. 
Ask him to call to mind things you've forgotten. Ask him to move your heart back into alignment where you're in need of reconciliation. And let's hope for growth, the right kind, the good kind. Uh, Lord, we submit this to you. And we ask you, living word of God, to say what we don't know how to say, to make right what we cannot make right, where we are in need of being reminded, Lord, where we are in need of reconciliation, we ask you, word of God, help us to hear, help us to return, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.